0: it past the hour of six o'clock good evening ladies and gentlemen this is the mark riley show i am he and uh when i came in here this evening it wasn't raining in the greatest city in the world but it is raining now now let me tell you uh, and again you know every now and then i don't follow the template letter for letter or word for word i came in here this evening or late this afternoon and jason Topperfeld, who's here on the uh at the controls, says to me, oh, you know, there's another talk show host in here, uh, in the studio. Well, you can just go in and, and sit down. It's no problem, no problem. I walk into the studio, and who do I see? Someone I haven't seen for years, my dear friend and host of Lead Story. Heard right here on the Progressive uh, Radio Network, Ms. Utrese Lead. Let me tell you something, this city was diminished when Trees left. By the way, I don't know. I don't even know what you trace. You still. Why did you leave? Now that I think of it, but anyway, it was just so great to see her here. We had a chance to talk for a few minutes, and and it was just it was it was a breath of fresh air and got me energized to do what I know I have to do between now and seven o'clock, which is to fill you in on a few things. Number one, the people of Ferguson, Missouri, will not quit. Will not stop. And and, and by the way, it's no longer just Ferguson. St. Louis is involved after the shooting death of a young man, young black man, uh, who the police said had a gun. Uh, Residents say, no, he didn't. And I have to say, uh, first of all, when my good friend Professor Basil Wilson came on and we talked about police community relations, he said, look, what's going on in Ferguson is a good thing. You know, I mean, nobody wants violence. Nobody wants to get anybody to get hurt. But these protests, these ongoing, nonstop protests are a good thing. And I got to be honest with you. Ferguson's putting New York to shame. We have Eric Garner here who was put to death in a police, who was killed in a, as a result of a police chokehold. We had a couple of protests, but nothing as sustained as what's going on in Ferguson. But there's a common thread ladies and gentlemen, a common thread. And it's a thread that has been there throughout the time I have been blessed to have a microphone in front of my face. And it's this. Black communities across this country, not just New York, it's not just Ferguson, black communities across this country do not trust the police. All right, now, you can slice that A million different ways. You can argue that that mistrust is misplaced. You can argue that the police are there to serve and protect and what's wrong with you. You know, something goes wrong, somebody hits you over the head. Who's the first person going to look for the police? But the fact of the matter is there is a gap that is way beyond yawning between the police and the black communities across this country. And the question then becomes, what's anybody going to do? You know, I mean, I, I can sit here and talk about it until I'm blue in the face. The people in Ferguson, and I give them all the credit in the world for this. They have stood up. They got themselves arrested a la Amadou Diallo here when Amadou Diallo was killed. People just, you know, volunteered to get arrested. They went on the campus of St. Louis University and protested there you know going to the seats of power in their communities and saying we're not going for this we are not going for this and this city new york that is and this country will never find a proper accommodation between the races as long as this basic mistrust continues to exist. And, it, and you know, it's not up to the black community to say, oh, okay, well, yeah, yeah you, you guys are cool. No big thing. Kill a couple of kids here, kill a kid there. Ah, psh. It's not that simple. The plain fact is the police who, by the way, are not used to conceding anything. And, and again, this is across the country, with a few exceptions, but across the country. Cops are They're not conceding nothing to black people. They're just not. It's like, you know, every time something happens, going back to Clifford Glover and, uh, uh, oh, God, what's his first name? Evans, Randolph Evans. And going forward from there. And it's always, oh, it's a tragic accident. Oh, it's such a shame. Well, as long as it's dealt with that. Or, by the way, in the case of Eric Garner, that wasn't a chokehold you saw. I don't care what your eyes told you. That wasn't a chokehold. That's, it's not going to work, folks. It is not going to work. Now, I don't always like to cast aspersions on my media brethren and sistren, as it were. But, you know, uh, there's a, there was a story in the paper the other day. It was in the New York Times, which, of course, everybody believes because it's the New York Times. Headline, Senate contest in South Dakota is free for all. Turns out there's like four people running for a U.S. Senate seat in South Dakota. And you can see this in media coverage every time that it's more than a Democrat and a Republican. Zephyr Teachout is an example of this. Howie Hawkins here in New York, example of this, running for governor. When people talk about minor party candidates, or candidates that are not Democrats or Republicans, it's always with this very subtle, and sometimes not so subtle, air of condescension. Like, Zephyr Teachout, how dare you? Howie Hawkins, what's wrong with you? Larry Pressler, who's a Republican, is running as an independent out in South Dakota for this Senate seat. Who are you to run as other than a Democrat or a Republican? I have always believed and always stated quite clearly, as far as I'm concerned, this is just my opinion, that democracy should not be limited, least of all, by the media. If there are four people running for an office, then put them all in a debate. And, of course, here in New York, you know, the minute you talk about having a Green Party and a Libertarian candidate in a debate, People go, they go absolutely berserk. Why do we need them? We don't need them. What, are you kidding me? We just need the Republican and the Democrat. These people aren't serious. And as long as people allow the media, and and, and I emphasize, allow the media, because it's not up to them. That's what they do. It's up to you to stop them from doing it. But as long as... They do this. Our political system will stink from the head down, from the neck up. However you want to describe it, it will stink because there is a dearth of ideas. Actually, there was an editorial. Uh, it might have been up upstate, one of the upstate papers that said as much. So, I, I, you know, this is an original thought out of me. And it's not unique to New York. And it's not unique to South Dakota. You know, you got uh Senator Larry uh Senator Larry former Senator Larry Pressler, you've got another Republican candidate, former Governor Mike Rounds, and you've got Rick Wyland, who's a Democrat, and there's a fourth candidate, Gordon Howie, a conservative independent who runs safaris. He's in the single digits in the polls, which means he's not relevant. Nobody needs to talk about him. Nobody needs to talk to him. And and I say that figuring if if he's conservative and he runs safaris, he's the antithesis of anybody I'd vote for. But that's not the point. The point is, one of the ways, not the only way, but one of the ways you reinvigorate the political system in this country is to open it up. What did Teddy Pendergrass say? Open it up. Because the way it is now, it's a closed loop of money, of influence. You know, and and in the South Dakota race, what do they do? Well, you know, somebody's got a chance. And it doesn't matter whether it's a Democrat or Republican. Democrats got a chance at winning. Let's send out a few consultants and some strategists. let's, Let's raise some money and pour it into ads out there. Because that's their answer to everything. Hire a couple of consultants and pour some money into it. And and by the way, you know, uh, one of my dearest friends who passed away last year, Bill Lynch, was a consultant. So I'm not, you know, I'm not dogging all consultants. But it's a system. And it's a closed loop. And when people get polled, they say, you know, the Congress stinks. And politicians in general stink. That's part of the reason why, because politicians, Democrats and Republicans, figure they have the game wrapped up, absolutely wrapped up. And until people decide they want to change it, they do have it wrapped up, sad in a way. We're going to have a guest at 615. We're going to talk about Ebola with somebody who knows what they're talking about. She's Dr. Christina Talbert Slagle, senior scientific officer at the Yale Global Health Leadership Institute and lecturer at the Yale School of Public Health. We try and get good guests to talk to about some of these overarching issues because there's a lot of stuff going on about Ebola. And as far as I'm concerned, too much finger pointing. But we'll get to that in a minute. Now, Another story that has to do with politicians and what they'll do, this is right here in New York. GOP aims to win state Senate seats with ads showing Bill de Blasio supporting Democrats. Because Bill de Blasio, of course, is a leftist, 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 leftist. Or left-leaning if you're trying to be charitable. So what they're doing, the Republicans, in an effort to maintain control of the state Senate, because see... The Republicans had controlled the state senate for a long time, for like 40 years. And then, like a few years ago, the Democrats got it. The Democrats messed up their opportunity. So then a, a group of Democrats split off and started caucusing with the Republicans. So they were able to stymie anything the Democrats wanted to do. Eh, whatever. But now, in order to try and win an absolute majority in the New York State Senate, and like most other legislatures... There's, you know, a lot that can be done in the Senate and an assembly or in the Senate and and the legislative house on a statewide level or on a state level. They can, uh, you know, that, that abortion thing, which we'll talk about, which the Supreme Court just struck down, that was passed by the Texas state legislature. So what they're doing is going to some of the upstate districts not the way up, not Buffalo or anything, but some of the upstate district, and saying, you see that? These Democrats, they're just tight with Bill de Blasio. And you know what Bill de Blasio Bill de Blasio's a commie. That's how politics works. We'll see if that's something that has any resonance with upstate voters. Unfortunately, there is this perception that everybody upstate hates New York City, but We'll leave that aside for the time being. Right now, do we have our guest on? We do. Fantastic. It is a pleasure to welcome to our microphone, Senior Scientific Officer at the Yale Global Health Leadership Institute and a lecturer at the Yale School of Public Health. Welcome, Dr. Christina Talbert-Slagel. How are you, ma'am? I'm fine. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to talk a bit about Ebola. And, uh, you know, there's a projection for Africa now that there may be up to 10,000 cases a week. And, and we want to kind of separate some fact from fiction here. And I'd like, doctor, if we can, to start out by talking about what Ebola is and why it suddenly has reemerged the way it has.
1: Sure. Uh, well, Ebola is a virus, and um, it is... It's spread from person to person in droplets, which is in liquid that's bodily fluids from someone who's symptomatic. It has emerged, um, it was actually first reported in March, but epidemiological studies have now traced it back to what they think was the index case in Guinea in December of 2013. A two-year-old little boy became infected with what has now been shown to be this Ebola strain. And so it's been building in West Africa for several months. Um, What we understand about the virus is that it's what we call a zoonotic infection, meaning that it comes from an animal species that harbors the infection all the time. And the evidence to date suggests that it comes from fruit bats. So Mm. interaction between humans yeah, and fruit bats is what causes the virus to be reintroduced to human beings. And then, as I mentioned, it's transmitted from person to person in liquid droplets of the from the bodily fluids of someone who is very, very sick. So that's what's happened. It's infected the caregivers of people who have been sick. And there's a lot of good data that tracks it now from that index case in that little boy in Guinea to Sierra Leone. To Liberia leading up to the number of cases that you mentioned just a few minutes ago. Yeah.
0: Why is it spreading so quickly doctor?
1: Well it is really it's an interesting paradox because Ebola virus is not actually as transmissible as many other viruses are mm-hmm. but it is you are at quite high risk if you are in close prolonged contact with someone who is very sick and as I mentioned, releasing a lot of bodily fluids. So in West Africa, people are caregiving and they're in close contact with people who are symptomatic, and then they are, have prolonged exposure and become infected. Um, and there also have been burial practices that have involved contact with the body of a deceased person, which further transmits infection uh, without any kind of protective equipment, no gloves, no gowns. So that's part of it. It's this really close, prolonged contact with infected mm-hmm. persons. Part of it's cultural. And then part of it is in West Africa, the health systems are not um, in, in any way equipped to help people, to protect susceptible people from becoming infected. So quarantine, quarantine. Um, You know, having people, healthcare workers or care providers wearing the proper protective equipment, that's just not been feasible there. Mm -hmm. So even though it's really not that transmissible, the circumstances, cultural circumstances, caregiving circumstances, and then the really breakdown of health systems has facilitated the spread that we're now seeing in these countries.
0: Doctor, there there seemed to be, uh, you know, I was watching television early this morning, there seemed to be uh, a lot of fingers being pointed. Uh, about whether or not hospitals, in particular that hospital Presbyterian, I think in Dallas, properly prepared for the Ebola cases they received. Do you think that's fair criticism?
1: Well, I think that the issue, the issue right now is that what has happened in Dallas is absolutely tragic. We can all agree that we would never want to see healthcare workers who are heroes becoming infected. Mm-hmm. What we are learning from this is that. This is a learning process, and unfortunately, it's a very high-stakes situation. Um, You know, Ebola has not come to the U.S. before, and so we're having to learn and train and react and prepare all at the same time. That people are in very high-risk situations, and when you're learning, mistakes are made, Mm -hmm. and that's what we're seeing. What we have to do is look carefully at how those mistakes are made, learn from those mistakes, and make sure that we protect everybody from those mistakes happening again. And I do believe that, um, you know, the CDC has, has taken steps to make sure that we are learning from mistakes and better preparing.
0: Now, uh, the, the largest union in the country that represents nurses says, uh, and, and I mean, they were pretty scathing about this, uh, that those who were treating Ebola patients in Dallas were seriously under-equipped. Uh, that protocols were were confusing and in some cases not followed at all. Uh, Will it take, I guess from what you were saying just now, it's going to take time for all those folks who are treating these patients uh, to be properly equipped and for the protocols to kind of get organized and work better?
1: Well, you know, I'm not the CDC. You know, I don't represent the government, so I can't really um, comment specifically on that. But what I can tell you is, that there are lots and lots of resources. They're online. They're publicly available for how to gown and glove and wear a mask and prepare for um, treating someone with Ebola. And we do have um, lots of personal protective equipment, you know, available in hospitals for various situations. Um, What I think we're learning here is, again, as I was saying, that we, we have to be learning from the mistakes. I mean, this is a learning process. And a learning process, of course, takes time. It needs to be um, as careful and mm-hmm. um, con- concentrated a learning process as possible where we say, okay, a mistake was made there. What was the mistake? How can we learn from it and make sure it doesn't happen again?
0: But, you know, I, I, and and this is a more, I guess, uh, societal question. Uh, it, it seems as though when, when bad things happen, Everybody wants to find someone to blame. Everyone wants, I mean, they call it accountability, they call it responsibility, but bottom line, it's blame. Uh, are we, uh, uh, from from where you sit, are we in danger of, you know, uh, pointing the finger and, and losing the forest for the trees here?
1: Well, you know, Mark, I think that we're in a situation where people are nervous and tensions run high and that it's understandable that people are feeling fear and maybe wanting to find a place where they can point fingers um, but i think that we that healthcare providers the cdc public health agencies i think we have our eye on the real deal here which is we we are in a serious situation mm-hmm. and it's definitely important that we figure out what went wrong who to blame is something that we may want to talk about on another day. What we need to do right now is make sure that our healthcare care workers are trained and prepared. And I, I feel that that's where the focus is.
0: Now, there seem to be, and again, um, because I consume a fair amount of news media, I end up seeing some of this stuff. Uh, there are people who are questioning why there were so such different outcomes, apparently, Uh, in treatment in Dallas, where Mr. Duncan died, and up in Nebraska, where apparently someone contracted Ebola but did not die. Is there something Nebraska knows that Dallas should, you think?
1: Well, um, I can give you two answers on that one. Let me first talk about the patients themselves. What we know at the molecular level is that there are lots of things that affect the um, prognosis of any given person. Mm -hmm. You know, I I did say that the number of people who die from Ebola now, in West Africa at least, is 70%. But uh, in the U.S. where we have good health care, that number is probably lower, but it's not zero. This is a deadly virus. Mm-hmm. What affects whether someone survives or, or dies is going to be partly their own immune response, partly when they enter treatment, partly things that happen with the virus inside their own bodies, and that is going to be individual to the patient specific to the patient uh-huh. on the other hand there is expertise in Nebraska that can be conveyed to hospitals all over the country and I know that those conversations are happening there have been conference oh, okay. calls with the team in Nebraska uh, team at CDC to help prepare hospitals all over the country to make sure that the training and protocols and equipment are all in place so that we can do everything that we can outside of the individual factors of the patient to try to ensure survival
0: are we doctor and our guest uh, and we're really privileged to have her here with us uh dr christina talbert slagle from yale university are are we at any risk at all for a full-blown ebola outbreak here in the states
1: well you know mark it's interesting um from an epidemiological standpoint the, the word outbreak it can be used to describe one case of a rare disease.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, you know, in some respects, we could say that here in the U.S., but I think what you're really asking me is are we going to see anything like what is being seen in West Africa? Exactly. And, yes, and uh, the answer to that, I think, is a resounding no. I think that we are much better prepared, we have much stronger health systems. What we do need to realize, though, is that the outbreak in West Africa is like a blazing wildfire. It is really out of control. And what we're seeing in the U.S. is sparks that are cast off from that wildfire that are happening here. Uh, we see, we've seen it in Spain, mm-hmm. Germany, and we are going to continue to see those sparks cast off unless we deal with the blazing wildfire. We, it's understandable that there's so much attention on these cases in the US, but we have to go to the place where the epidemic really is out of control and and douse this flame, these flames. Or we are gonna to continue to see some cases. We are not, we have very strong health systems We are in a learning process. We're human. We're making some mistakes, but we're learning from those, and we are not going to see something on the scale that we're seeing in West Africa here in the U.S., Mm -hmm. but unless we take really decisive, firm, strong action in West Africa, we are going to continue to see those sparks.
0: You know, some politicians, uh, Doctor, have talked about prohibiting flights from West Africa from landing here in the U.S. Would that make any difference from a health standpoint?
1: Well, again, you know, I understand the instinct there. Um, there. There are many reasons why banning flights is not going to help prevent us from um, seeing Ebola cases. For one thing, banning flights um, could send people who want to get here underground, as it were, and the borders of these countries are porous. There are sometimes people who have multiple passports. Uh, there's evidence from past efforts like this that banning flights does not prevent people from traveling from the affected countries with or without the infection. What that would do is if someone were to avoid the ban and come to the U.S. with Ebola, we would have no information about how that person had traveled, what kind of exposure people might be might have had, and how we could address that. So that would really be um, counterproductive. Mm-hmm. In addition... We, If we ban flights, what will also happen is that the, the brave people who have volunteered to go to these countries and provide help will not do it because they won't be able to come back home. And so, as I was saying earlier, we will be less likely to be able to douse this wildfire and protect the people in West Africa and, and everybody else. And the final reason why that's not a good idea is because banning flights would have a serious detrimental impact on the already very fragile economies of these countries Mm -hmm. and in this globally interconnected world that's going to affect us all so the instinct is understandable but really banning flights would be counterproductive for many reasons
0: final quick question you're going to be part of a panel discussion about ebola up at yale can you tell us a bit
1: about it sure Well, uh, back in early September, a group of us um, from all over campus, you know, people who knew each other and kind of our network, just some emails went around and we said, this this is really, this is very serious. What can we do at Yale? What can we do? So we got together, we talked it through, and we said, well, you know, one thing that we do very well here is educate. So let's have a panel of people who have some expertise related to Ebola Students can come. Anybody who's curious can come, and we'll answer some questions and help give information, educate our population here in the Yale community, and then ask them to educate their social spheres so that we can really get good information out as far as it will go. So that was that was really the origin of the idea. Um, we're also doing some fundraising efforts here, giving people venues and links uh, where they can donate, There's a Yale website about Ebola. There's going to be a benefit concert at the beginning of November. A bunch of Yale student groups, the Yale Student Symphony Orchestra, and some Mm -hmm. of the singing groups are all coming together to do a benefit to help raise some money. Because in our early meeting, you know, we learned, as we all know, that so many things are needed, equipment, um, you know, any kind of supplies, vehicles. So it was really about what can we do at Yale, And, and that's where the idea came from.
0: Dr. Christina talbert Slagle, thank you so much. We really appreciate your time, and this has been a very, very important conversation.
1: My pleasure, Mark. Thanks. Take care. Have a
0: good one. You too. Bye-bye. Dr. Christina talbert Slagle, Senior Scientific Officer at the Yale Global Health Leadership Institute and a lecturer at the Yale School of Public Health. It's 6.30 straight up. Wow, we did that 15 minutes flat, Jason. Um, I want to play a little music for a minute collect my thoughts. Open the phones to you at 888-874-4888. That's 888-874-4888. Talk about a bullet. You can talk about whatever's on your mind. When we come back, I want to talk about a gutsy move by a single employee of Wells Fargo. This is the Mark Riley Show. Nine minutes before the hour of 7 o'clock. Before we talk Wells Fargo, we're going to talk Ebola at 888-874-4888 with my good buddy Michael S.W. from the borough of the Bronx. Michael, how you doing, buddy?
2: Hey, Mark. I know it's been a while since we spoke. Yeah, in fact, absolutely. In fact, um, Ebola was one of the topics I wanted to talk about, as well as the latest in the NYPD abuse, <clears throat> as well as the union president's... Um, reaction to the police commissioner the mayor the critics and all the evidence going against what you mentioned the um, the Garner case for an example mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, first off the Ebola thing i'm surprised that nobody in the media is questioning a what well, some people have questioned as to how in the world is it that Mr. Duncan was just merely sent home and was not given the proper treatment as other Ebola um, patients has um, received, and ironically, those Ebola patients um, were Caucasians. But add to that, I don't know if you know, there were two different kinds of medications that came into effect, two different drugs. One of them was ZNAP, mm-hmm. which was administered to those Caucasian um, patients. But when it came to Duncan, when he finally got... Um, treatment. They didn't give him to the that They gave him some unknown drug called dopamine, which no one dopamine? knew about. Dopamine, yes. I heard it on, on public radio. And he wound up dying. So, uh, the thing is is that, A, why wasn't he given... Well, let me backtrack. Why was he given a medication which no one knew about? Just well, on, I, I an know an that it,
0: over and above the medication... Uh, the nurses that, uh, 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 who were there treating him, apparently, they left him in some open area for a, a relatively long period of time. I, I forgot how the, long it was. I don't know that, Michael, right I got to be honest with you. I don't, know that, I don't know enough about medicine to racialize this. I do know there have been questions about Mr. Duncan's outcome versus the outcome up in Nebraska. And apparently there are the the Nebraska hospital, and there there are, I think, four of them all together, uh, including, uh, I think it's Emory down in Atlanta, uh, who are uh, very well suited uh, to deal with this specific kind of problem. The word is they're trying to retrofit Bellevue here in New York to, to do the same kind of thing.
2: But not to really racialize. This, although some people already are, which could raise legitimate concerns. But the thing is, if you know one particular medication has cured two others, why would you even think of changing up for another person? If you know one drug works for two people, you would want to keep using that to cure, uh, you know, others. It did, it just did not make sense to me, and I know a lot of people are going to be raising that. And then, for all you know. Since he was given this dopamine, how do we know that Mr. Duncan died from Ebola? He could have died from the dopamine, which could have been lethal. Because, again, no one knows about this drug.
0: Well, it I mean, they, they were, I'm sure there's going to have to be some kind of an autopsy yeah. oh, uh, you know, to, to determine exactly what. Right now, the public conscience, as far as the court of public opinion is concerned, he died from Ebola. I don't yeah. know. Uh, but I do know this. Uh, this is a, a very, very difficult situation. I don't think you can, and I saw somebody praising the Dallas Hospital's response to, to the Ebola patients that were there. And, of course, there's been a second nurse who they now say has, has contracted the disease. Uh, I don't know that you could really, you know, put it this way. I wouldn't be patting myself on the back given the outcomes. You know what I'm saying?
2: Can I address about the NYPD now? Yeah, go ahead. All right. I know that it is the job of the police union to protect their police officers in terms of their rights, their due process. Well, their membership, yeah. The, That's what yeah. they do. If they I don't mean, do it, it they're union,
0: not going to be union leaders for long.
2: Right. but that, But they're supposed to do it on the internal, not on the external. But I think it is absolutely a disgrace for Pat Lynch to... A, just dismiss the reports from the the city coroner's report, as well as an independent coroner, stating that Eric Garner did die from an illegal chokehold. You've got videotapes showing an illegal chokehold. I don't know where the devil he comes off saying that A, it's not a chokehold, and he says that B, he thinks that... People need to stop videotaping and getting it in police officers' way. Uh, here's, a, here's a refresher for everybody. Federal courts have already stated that the people have a right to oh, no, it. Oh, no, it's
0: perfectly legal. He's not it talking is. about making it illegal. Now, we ought to say, in fairness, Michael, that there are some police officers, not all, but some, yep. who try and treat people. Because, you know, there's an organization called Cop Watch that actually trains people. to go out and and, and videotape and monitor the police. The problem is, if you're on the street and a cop says, you know, stop doing something and you continue to do it, the cop is then going to take whatever action, whether they think it's legal or not. But that's a
2: funny thing you should say that more, because they have tried and their cops are already on video, tried to suppress or stop people from video recording, even though the courts have said, no, you cannot do it. Now, there are a lot of people also saying that, you know, there are cops that are on the force that shouldn't have been on the force to begin with, that they were likely bullies back in the high school days. That's something really.
0: I saw that that letter to the editor in the Daily News, and it's created a firestorm because, you know, uh, see, here's the thing, Michael. Mm -hmm. Newspapers in this town, all of them, have people who are very quick to jump up and defend the police. They got family who are cops. Uh, They grew up in an environment where the police were respected. That's why I mentioned at the very top of the show the fact that Ferguson, Missouri, has become the flashpoint for distrust between black communities and the police. And And until this is dealt with... And I mean, dealt with seriously. With, by the way, Patty Lynch at the table. He's got to be at the table. Ed Mullins, the guy who runs the sergeant's benevolence, they got to be at the table. Absolutely. And they have to under, They have to be made to understand. I hate to. I hate to use that term. First of all, they have to listen. Well, yeah, that's the most important thing. Yes. They do have to listen. They have to understand what it's like to see this relationship from a side that's not their side. And I've always been the one that's been saying that there should be no
2: reason why police and communities, law-abiding communities, cannot get along. The law-abiding communities and people of color should not be made to be treated like criminals if they're complying with the law. And likewise, police officers should not be filled with this perception that we're always the enemy and so forth. And I think the thing is, is that when you have Certain leaders that is institutionalizing like a this kind of bullying atmosphere or abusive atmosphere and setting the precedent of always leaning on the scales that cops will always get away with whatever they're doing. The, the thing is that we have to have um, an understanding and a set precedence that there is equal that is to be equal accountability. Uh, everyone knows full well that any other individual engaging in the kind of abuse police officers have been doing will have been locked up already awaiting trial. Well, see, Michael,
0: that's an interesting point. Thanks a lot for the call because i got to run. But understand that the police, the law enforcement community. too. Well, no, but see, they understand the drill, all right? And they understand through the lens of history in a way that communities don't. And that's what's so interesting about Ferguson, you see, because in Ferguson, they haven't stopped yet. But in New York, they know what the deal is. There'll be demonstrations. There'll be marches. I wouldn't care if you put a million people over the Verrazano Bridge. They're prepared for that.
1: They understand
0: how that works. And they know that a week after all those people march over the bridge, it's going to be back to business as usual.
2: But well, Mark, my, my thing is and I know you gotta go, but I just wanna make sure that everyone understands that I'm looking out for the police officers as well. I've assisted them as as well. And the thing is is that when the you know what hits the fan, the certain cops are always thrown under the bus for quote following orders. I can go back to Justin Volpe, Charles Schwartz, even maybe um what's that other cop's name? Francis Lavodi, who was sentenced to federal prison. I know they probably wish they could turn the clock back in time and do everything all over again where they would still be on the job and be in the honorary um, profession. And if some cops are pressured to do things, they know that it's wrong, but they have to follow orders. That well, is yeah, I mean, that,
0: that's the police hierarchy. That, that's you know, my uh, point,
2: brother. Yeah. That is exactly my point.
0: All right. Michael, listen, thanks a lot for calling. Got to run. Want to take up this question. Uh, because I, I found this story to be like utterly fascinating, especially, uh, Jason, you may remember last week I yelled and screamed about Walmart, right? Because they cut healthcare for their employees that work less than 30 hours a week. And by the way, put it on tax on the taxpayer. You know, uh, that whole, the taxpayer thing makes me sick. It makes me want to hurl. You know why? Because the people that are the beneficiaries of taxpayer money also pay taxes. (laughs) It's not like they're getting money tax free or nothing, but I'll leave that aside for the moment. But that, uh, I mean, that, that really made me want to hurl. All right. And there, there's some people that are, are still discussing that a week later, but this is a gutsy move by one individual. His name is Tyler, Oates. He's 30 years old. He works for Wells Fargo. And tonight, this show salutes him. He sent a letter to the CEO of Wells Fargo, John Stumpf, who was posted on Reddit. And he asked the company to provide a $10,000 raise to each and every one of Wells Fargo's approximately 300,000 employees. He said, quote, think as well of the positive publicity in a time of extreme consumer skepticism toward banks. By doing this, Wells Fargo will not only help to make its people, its family, more happy, productive and financially stable. It will also show the rest of the United States, if not the world, that, yes, big corporations can have a heart other than philanthropic endeavors. Now, apparently sent this out, you know, to 200 of the 300,000 employees He managed to get their emails uh, He doesn't expect to get to be disciplined Which, you know The more public you make these kinds of things The less likely it is That Wells Fargo would vamp on him For doing something like this uh, You know uh, And of course You have uh, A spokesperson from Wells Fargo Rochelle Messick who declined to say whether Stumpf, the CEO, has seen the letter or whether Oates will be disciplined. He really, she did release a statement explaining the company offers, quote, market competitive compensation. Hey, they all say that. McDonald's says that. Walmart says that. Market competitive compensation. So if you're in a market where everybody, you know, doing a particular job is working at or around a minimum wage, That's what they'll pay because they don't have to pay anymore. Now, mind you, Wells Fargo clocked a billion dollars in the last quarter. Not the whole year, Jason. The last quarter. All right. Multiply that by four. You got twenty four billion dollars, assuming the quarters are relatively equal. Now, I you know, my math is not that good. So I'm not exactly sure how much it would cost to give 300,000 people a $10,000 raise. It's a lot of money. W- w- would that be $3 billion maybe? Yeah, $3 billion bucks. All right, so that's half the profit from one quarter to do that. I don't think that's outlandish. I really don't. Now, you know, Forbes and the Wall Street Journal, all these people... They'll shoot somebody for making an argument like that. They're, all, they're going, what are you, crazy? 10000 what would they do with it anyway? And, you know, it's one thing if this guy Tyler Rhodes had done this and said, I want a $10,000. Same for everybody. Everybody. Give them a $10,000 raise. It's not going to break Wells Fargo. They'll keep foreclosing and making lending and creating new quote, financial instruments, end quote. They'll make theirs. And, uh, by the way, uh, this guy Oates apparently, uh, worked in, what was it exactly he worked in? Uh, oh, he processes requests from people seeking to stop debt collection calls. (laughs) Hey, Jason, there's a thankless gig if I ever heard one, you know, uh, Crazy, crazy. But I, I salute him. First of all, he's got hutzpah, and anybody that lives in New York knows what chutzpah actually is. Got guts, got moxie. And, uh, you know, throwing down the gauntlet like this, uh, you know. He's also, by the way, Tyler Rhodes has asked his fellow employees to also seek better way. Now, I ain't going to stick their neck out like he did. You know, he could be on, a, on an unemployment line very soon. But I salute him. I say congratulations, you've got guts. The U.S. Supreme Court, no less, allowed more than a dozen Texas abortion clinics to reopen. It blocked a state law that imposed strict requirements on abortion providers. Had the law been allowed to stand, it would have caused all but eight and anybody that can look at a map can imagine what eight abortion providers in a state as big as Texas would mean. Eight of the state's abortion clinics to close all but eight to close and would have required many women to travel more than 150 miles to get to the nearest abortion provider. Now, the people that drafted this law said, well, yo, you can go to New Mexico. <laughs> all right. Uh because apparently the eight that would be allowed to stay open are clustered in the eastern part of Texas. And apparently none of them are south of San Antonio. Now, this is as far as I'm concerned, and I'm not a woman, so I can't, you know, say for sure, but it sounds to me like it's a direct slap in the face. Not the order, but the law in the first place. And by the way, the order was only five sentences long and it had no explanation of the justices' reasoning. It's an interim step that's not done yet. But abortion clinics welcomed what they said was the enormous practical impact of this move. Because obviously, you know, if you run any kind of business for profit, nonprofit, whatever, and you're forced to close for like 10 months, 11 months or whatever, a good possibility you won't reopen. So, and by the way, Anthony Scalia... Silent Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito said they would have allowed the law to be enforced. Wow, surprise, surprise, surprise. But, you know, it is what it is. And uh, by the way, the law in Texas giveth, the law in Texas taketh away. They allowed Texas, a, a federal appeals court in Texas, allowed their draconian voting restrictions, voter suppression stand. So they give with one hand and they smack in the back of the head with the other. Such is, I guess, the state of Texas. Now, here's a really naughty, thorny question. Should a white mother who was given a black man's sperm by mistake be paid for the sperm banks mix up now, that may sound like some flight of fancy or something you might see in a movie someplace, but it actually happened. Jennifer Cramblet and her wife, Amanda Zincon, are suing a sperm bank because Cramblet was inseminated with sperm from a black donor instead of the blonde-haired, blue-eyed donor they had chosen. It sparked a lot of debate. Uh... I am sorry to butt in, but I'm just saying like I can understand them getting money, but the kids the kid, that's it. That's yeah, and simple. apparently but I yeah. understand them wanting some money, but the kids you kid enjoy. The kids and kid, uh, the kids a kid and apparently they're going to raise the kid. Good. Oh good. Okay. You know, uh they wanted a white baby. So they went to the Midwest Sperm Bank and chose a blonde blue-eyed donor who happened to be number 380. When Cramblet was 5 months pregnant, they found out she had been inseminated not by donor, five, uh, by donor number 380, but by donor number 330, a black man. The couple did not get what they asked for, which was a particular donor. The company made a mistake, and it should have to pay for that. Now, that comes from a black woman, who's also, by the way, a lesbian, who has a white partner. They considered insemination of the white partner before choosing to adopt It's a thorny, thorny question, man. I I mean, first of all, every child is a blessing. That's number one. Okay? No matter what physical condition, race, creed, color, I don't care. Every child is a blessing. Should they be looking to get money from this? First of all, everybody's trying to get money from somebody. You know, what was that Beatles song, Sue Me, Sue You, Blues? (laughs) Old song now. Uh... People seem to get litigious as soon as they open their eyes in the morning. You know, it's like, whoa, let me get a cup of coffee and figure out if there's somebody I can sue. You go on TV during the daytime. And please don't try this at home, (laughs) but you go on TV during the daytime. Every other commercial, if you've been hurting an accident, I don't care what kind of accident, you've been sucking up asbestos for the last 20 years, call me now. I
1: hate to say I'm sorry to interrupt
0: again. My son and I sing the 800-888-888. Salino and Barnes. We sing it, and my wife's like, what's going on here? Like We hear it all day. All day. All day. And, it, you know, I don't say that people are necessarily encouraged by TV commercials, but there is this litigious thing. And I thought it was only in California because, you know, in California, they've been suing like this for decades. But now it seems like it's spread all over the country. Sue, sue, sue. Uh, I don't. How do you determine damages here? See, because that's the question. How do you determine damages? Number one. And how do you keep from turning your child into a product, into a commodity? I ordered iced tea with milk. I got iced tea back with no milk. <laughs> I'm suing. You know what I'm saying? It's like a child here who turns out now to be a biracial child. How do you say that I want a certain amount of money on account of my biracial child? (laughs) I don't understand it. I don't. It's a little difficult for me. Um, And, and, you know, there there would be, for me, a lot that would flow from that. You know, uh, the whole... Genetic engineering edge to I want a white, blonde-haired, blue-eyed baby and no other. Would they have sued if the kid had brown hair? was still a white kid but had brown hair. Or maybe there's a recessive gene and maybe it was donor 380, the white guy, but his grandmother was black and suddenly it reappeared in this kid. (laughs) You think it's crazy, don't you? It happens. It happens, party people. I, I don't know. I, I just say, and, and Jason, I think, put it best. Child's a blessing. Raise the child. You know, now, if you need the money to raise the child, I guess that's a whole different thing. But you have the child. Raise the child. Uh, before we go, because we got a couple of minutes here. Uh, this guy who smoke bombed a restaurant climbing out of a subway hatch. Very taking a Pelham one two three (laughs) on a certain level, I don't know what the problem was. Uh, It's called Bar Pity on Sixth Avenue, and it was in daylight. You know, it was like four fifty in the afternoon. Guy had an American flag jacket, crawled out of a subway hatch, smoke bombed the thing, and then disappeared into the ether. Was the food bad? Was the appetizer? Did the appetizer stink? Was the entree too small? I I, I don't understand. I truly, truly do not understand. Now, as it turns out, surveillance video from Da Silvana, which used to be my late brother's favorite, favorite, favorite restaurant in New York. That's the video that showed this guy. Uh, There were no injuries, by the way. But they say, ah, hey, Jason, here's how we come full circle. The suspect is a blonde man, <laughs> about 20 years old, <laughs> wearing black gloves, a black baseball cap, and a multicolored shirt. See what happens when you order a blonde haired guy? <laughs> That's what happens. I'm I'm just I'm sorry. I'm just being very, 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 very facetious. I don't know if they'll ever bust the guy. Maybe he lives in the train. You know, it could be, could be. Before we go, because Jason's giving me the, either the peace sign or I got two minutes. Uh, my To the Ridiculous segment. And, and this comes to us from the city of New Orleans. You know where New Orleans, Louisiana is, right? Two gun-toting cell phone bandits took photos of themselves along with a friend showing off handguns and then automatically uploaded to the victim's cloud-based storage account. So they robbed the guy. They took pictures and it automatically uploaded to the guy's cloud account. Now New Orleans police have more than a description of the wannabe gangsters. They have photos and one suspect's name. The Daily News calls it a selfie-inflicted wound. (laughs) Ah, Very funny. Three women were robbed near the French Quarter. Three women? You rob women like that? What's wrong with you? Yeah, they could have been men dressed as women. They could have been women dressed as men. But they, the, the perpetrators ought to be locked up for stupidity over and above anything else. Other thing, though, uh, they haven't busted them all yet. They're searching for them. And, and by the way, they're running around with guns. Guns! I don't understand. I, 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 I just do not, for the life of me, understand. Ladies and gentlemen, we're almost out of here. Um, take this Ebola thing seriously, folks. And, and I don't know why, you know, how how do you actually, like, prevent yourself? Sure, I I rode home on the bus with a woman yesterday that had a mask over her face. I don't know where she worked or what she was doing or what she was trying to prevent, but she had a mask over her face and she looked like the devil himself was chasing her as she got on the bus now i'm not down with paranoia or nothing but uh yo how about we kind of like get a cure i i had a problem from the beginning i may have said this on the air i had a problem from the beginning with the whole notion of sending military troops to west africa to fight ebola they're not a they're not an army (laughs) they're not the germans how do you send an army to fight Ebola? Obviously, it wasn't successful because it's gotten over here. And they're talking about 10,000 cases a week in Africa. So I, I, I guess they must have lost that war. Send the best people you have. Make sure everybody here knows what to do. I'm talking about health care providers now. Because it's the health care providers that are caring for people and ending up sick. Which is ridiculous. Ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. Because, see, what will happen is nurses won't mess with you. Does that mean I got to go, Jason? I got to go? I got to go. I got to go! Thanks to Jason Tarbenfeld. Thanks to Gary Null for the Progressive Radio Network. My name is Mark Riley. This has been the Mark Riley Program. We will be back with you next Wednesday live at 6 p.m. Have yourselves a great rest of the evening and a better week ahead.